Good morning. Um, scripture reading this morning is from Romans 6.15, or 6.15 through to 7.6. So it's in your brochure, but you follow along. Um, <clears throat> what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves into sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from your sin and have come to become slaves of righteousness. I'm using an example of everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you, sorry, that makes me laugh. <laughs> Um, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now you offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from things that you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now you know that you have been set free from sin and have come, become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap is holiness and the result of eternal life is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to you, I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as her husband is alive. But if he dies, she is released from that law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. You might belong to another so that you might belong to another, to him who raised you from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. And now by dying to once, but now by dying to once, one more time, by now by dying to what once was bound us, we have been released from the law so that we might serve a new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. There is a, a big misconception about the Christian life that has cost a lot of people, a lot of years, has cost uh, a number of families, kind of generations of, of people who would have perhaps uh, gives, given some kind of credence to the Christian faith, but have decided not to because of this misconception. Uh, and, and the misconception is, to have it there, that, that the Christian life is a miserable one. That the Christian life is is basically this constant battle and struggle. It's not what the New Testament lays out. The misconception is that the Christian life is a list, 
and mostly a list of don'ts. But it is even worse to perceive that you are caught in a battle. And so there's always that, in this misconception, always that tension. Oh no. Uh, Good theology presents this misconception basically by saying that you can live uh, in the... It's it's not the proper understanding of the Christian life, but it's, it's purposefully or inadvertently presented by some that because we have been saved by grace, then, well, you can you could just do nothing. You can go on sinning, because after all, it doesn't make much difference. So there's the do nothing. In, in theology, it's called quietism, do nothing. Or there is what's called uh, the grim earnestness of the religious life. So it's either, well, I'll sin, or I'll really try not to sin, and I'll be really angry at everybody who does sin. Which grim earnestness usually makes you more aware of the sins of other people. Or you become aware of your own sins in such a way that you lash out at other people. And for many people, this is the understanding of what the Christian life is. To exist somehow in the pull of these two things. Our presentation for this morning is done with the intent of setting you free from that misconception. To... To do so, you have to understand uh, grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, properly understood, is not a human activity. Now, you can show grace in your life. You can demonstrate grace to one another. But in terms of, the theological, in terms of Christian theological understanding, grace is always not first about what we do. Grace is what God has done for us. Grace is that God has forgiven sin. And seeing the grace of God brings in us a self-consciousness that helps us to see that we're a new person in Christ. That is a life of freedom, not a life of, oh no, this battle. To the extent where good theological professors of mine, talking about Romans 7, which we'll look at not too long from now, this idea of, remember Paul saying, I I don't understand myself because the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. And it, it seems like what's being presented there is this battle. And really good biblical scholars will show, that's what the text is saying you're free from in the spirit. He's describing the life of the flesh. But grace has given you a life of freedom. Where does this misconception come from? Does it come from the Bible? Well, I would say it comes from a misreading of the Bible. That you are flesh, which is true, but that you are defined entirely by sinfulness. You're terrible, you're worthless, whatever you want. God wants you to be better, so now you're caught in this ongoing battle. Tossed in between. Life in Christ is not supposed to be like this. Life in Christ is a positive life. It's not blind. It's able to even be honest about sin, but it is an abundant life. Last week we looked at Romans 6, chapter 1 to 14. This after beginning over the last number of months to outline the Christian gospel, that God has revealed a righteousness, chapter 3, verse 21. A righteousness has been revealed by God that this way of faith is always the way, even back to Abraham. Chapter 4 is going to outline that. 
and that sin came to all through Adam, but how much more, this is chapter 5 now, if sin through Adam, how much more life and grace through Christ? And then into chapter 6. The beginning of chapter 6 that we looked at last week, verse 1, asks the question, so should we just keep sinning since Jesus Christ's grace uh, covers over sin when we understand it? And the answer there is um, to, you know, the translation tends to soften things out, especially if you're reading NIV or something like that. Um, But some of the language in Scripture is actually a little bit harsh. And so this is not what the translation says, but it helps me to understand it. Because should we just keep, should we keep, on sinning. There's I-N-G at the end of that. Should we just keep on sinning? That's the question in verse 1. And the answer comes from Paul. Is your head made of cement? Are you block-headed? I've shown you grace and life in Jesus Christ and you're asking the question, should I keep on sinning then? As if you think this thing has more value than this. You died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. This is not merely, though it is, but it's not merely an historical event. It is the meaning, template, paradigm, narrative even of your whole life. The Christian life is not primarily about right and wrong. And we have lost decades and probably centuries, though. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. But when the church presents itself in culture as if its primary interest is right and wrong, that is a loss. Because it moves us away from life in Jesus Christ. And those of you who are are seeking how to relate to people who are caught in sin or even sin in your own life will know that the right-wrong paradigm won't cut it. The Christian life is not primarily about right and wrong, though those things are important. It's not primarily about good and bad or success and failure, even spiritual. It's not even primarily about natural and supernatural Though in a way, when I say what it is about, it fits into that. It's not about all of these things primarily. The Christian life is primarily about, and this is what Romans is going to say, the gospel of God, the Christian life is primarily about death and resurrection. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. So the question comes up again in verse 15. In verse 1 it was, should we keep on sinning? In verse 15, it's a little bit different language. It says, should we sin since we're now not under the law anymore? You've just told us that. And the answer there is another, is your head made of cement? It's literally, the answer is, God forbid. Can I just kind of throw out the law because now I'm not under the law? Can I just sin? God forbid that you would do that. And then the central, text, central metaphor of the text is presented. And the central metaphor of the text, and it helps to remember what Paul writes as he moves down in this. He, he presents the metaphor and then he says, look, I'm using a human argument. In other words, you, this metaphor, don't take it so far. Like when you read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then somebody tells you, you know, what sheep have and what they do with the wool and there's this many pieces of wool. I think, I mean, that can be helpful in a way for our minds, but it was a metaphor, right? And so Paul's saying here, I'm going to use the metaphor and the central metaphor is slavery, but don't force the metaphor too far because it's a human argument and you won't understand it except with the metaphor. So that's, and, and the metaphor simply is you're going to be slaves to something. No one is free. 
You're going to be slaves to this, or you're going to be slaves to this. So let me give you an example of this, and I'll say right off the top, because you, know, you never know what you're going to say that is controversial. As, as a preacher, you have a feeling that, well, sometimes I do, sometimes I know this will be controversial. Um, but uh, at other times, you use a little illustration, and then somebody gets upset at you, and, oh, I didn't even think of that. And, but I'm going to give you an example. I'm not taking a stance on this one way or the other, whether I believe in this or not. I was listening to CBC Radio this week, and I heard of, uh, it's not in the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual for uh, Mental Health, right? So doctors can't diagnose this yet, but a number of doctors in Canada, the United States, and other places say they're coming across a new eating disorder. And so they said, now normally someone comes into their office and they're, and they're wasting away to nothing, and what's the diagnosis often? Anorexia nervosa. So you look in the mirror and you see someone who looks really big, not the reality that you are maybe close to death because you're so tiny. But what they're saying is there's people coming into our offices who they don't have anorexia nervosa because when they look in the mirror, they don't see somebody big. It's not, it's, it can't, it's not that. So they've come up with a new name for it, and it's not in the manual yet, but uh, it's called orthorexia nervosa. Have you heard about this? And what they're saying is, now, again, this is why I'm not taking a stance on it. Some people, that's ridiculous, or, yeah, I've seen that. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is I'm using the metaphor. That's it, okay? Is that they're saying some people are so committed to clean eating that they're unhealthy and even dying. There's a number of cases of of people now dying because they were so committed to clean eating that they weren't getting the nourishment that they needed. So you say, well, that's not clean eating. That's why it's a nervosa, a syndrome, right? And here's the point I'm making with the metaphor. Some people would say, I used to be slaves to what? I always had to have that dessert. I always had to have that treat or I ate too much at night or whatever it was. And now I'm free. And that could be true. But what Paul's going to say is, he'll go into the orthorexia nervosa camp. He'll say, all all you're doing at points is trading one slavery for another. So the question isn't whether you're free or not, because nobody's truly free. The question is, what are you enslaved to? That's the language the text's going to use. And here's what it's going to present. You can be slaves to, to sin, or you can be slaves to obedience to God. You can be slaves to sin, or you can be slaves to righteousness. You can be slaves to sin or you can be slaves to God. The the play in the text here is that if you're a slave to anything that is human of the flesh, then the slavery to that ultimately brings death. If you're a slave to righteousness, or more explicitly, if you're a slave to God as revealed in Jesus Christ, then the result will be life. So there is a sense to which, and this is why he's saying, this is a human argument, so yeah, because you say, so Paul's saying slavery is good? That's why he put, I'm using a human argument. I'm telling you, it's Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Paul's saying, serve the one who brings life. No one's free. The question is the worthiness of that which you serve. So here are the distinctions between these two types of slavery that Paul, or two two things to be enslaved to that Paul will present. Firstly, he's going to talk about the origin of these two different things that you could be enslaved to, to righteousness or to sin, to flesh or to God. The first uh, 
Slavery to sin, he says, is automatic. So there is none of you who has to say, uh, when you're growing up, when you're a little child, I think I want to be self-centered. It happens automatically. And you spend a life, hopefully, some of you spend a life trying to get past it. I sometimes think of a Paul Simon song that says, I want to rid my heart of envy and cleanse my soul of rage before I'm through. Showing that that's, that's not an easy exercise because automatically what comes is a self-centeredness. Mine! I want that now! No! It's... Um, Comedian Louis C.K., and I wouldn't show many of his clips here in church, but he is an amazing um, insight into the human condition. Uh, he just presents it sometimes in interesting ways. He has one bit where he's talking, and she's older now. I think she's a teenager now. But uh, where he's talking about one of his daughters, and he said, you know, my daughter is a real... And then it's a, a bad word. So that he's, he's doing a comedy bit, and he goes, yeah, my five-year-old daughter is a real... And everyone in the crowd goes, what? Oh. And then he says, well, what would you call it? He said, there were nine of us going out to dinner the other night. And we're leaving the house. And she refused to tie her shoes and leave. She's a... Now, why is that? What's the humor in that? The humor in that, of course, is everybody kind of accepts that with a 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 12, 15-year-old. It's natural. That's, his, that's the joke. Hopefully as you move to adulthood, you're able to move from this. That's the origin of slavery to sin, Paul says. It, you, don't have to, you don't have to try to do it. I, here's one thing you are all experts in in this room. I wish I could look everyone in you in the eye, in myself too. You're experts in this. It's natural. Now, in the text, slavery to sin begins when we're born. Slavery to God begins when we are awakened to conversion. Now, each of you have different conversion narratives or accounts. Those of you who would say, I've come to Christ, I've prayed the prayer, however you put it. Some can remember a time, a moment, a day. Others think, well, I grew up in this. And, but, but what is being said here is there is some kind of moment, some kind of time, an awakening to conversion where you realize that you have been made new and that you live not according to the demands of the flesh, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Different thing. The origin of, of slavery to sin is birth because we live after the fall, after Adam. The origin of slavery to God is an awakening to conversion but the conversion is from the realization. It's not even that you're like, oh, I'm a terrible sinner, please help me. Which, at some point in your Christian life, you pray. Conversion means that you see sin is forgiven by God. I live in grace. Secondly, the development in these two kinds of slavery, they both develop, they're not static. And it's another misconception of the Christian church that we can try at times to get people to pray a certain prayer, but not often uh, think about what actually this development in the Christian life means. Uh, there are different words for it in, in Christian theology. One of them is sanctification, a word that we don't use often, but it's a very important word. We should use it more. So both of these slaveries develop 
but the way that slavery to sin develops is, Paul's going to say, a deterioration. It, it leads to death. So it might look good, right? The, the pleasure of sin for a season. I was watching something the other day. What was it? Oh, a TV show that I, I shouldn't tell you because why would you watch that? It's a terrible show. Uh, but somebody had taken crack on a show. They were using drugs. And they experienced this high that you could see the way it was being depicted on the show. Um, they were just, and they smiled. And, they, and, and I had a bit of a spiritual moment as I, as I watched it because it was harsh. You know, that, those kinds of things can be harsh. I thought, what an interesting spiritual comment that something that can bring such temporary pleasure or relief or high will literally destroy your life and the lives of others around you. That's what's, that's what's being talked about here. It is a deterioration, the slavery to sin, the slavery to self. Other Christian writing speaks of it, and not just Christian, but, but I'm in the Christian tradition, so speaks of it as, as the false self. And that high kind of metaphor gives... But it's a deterioration. Uh, Russian novelist, well, Tolstoy put it this way when he's talking about how bad it can get. He just said simply, and after a stupid life shall come a stupid death. The deterioration of sin. The pain and depravity of sin that gets worse and worse. That gets to the point of embarrassment. I mean, if you, you may have seen this. Some people caught so much in these cycles. It can break your heart. If you see loved ones caught in this, it can lead to such... Um, I've seen it even with loving people where there's almost a resentment. You just don't want to look. The deterioration of a cycle of sin. But the, the important thing here is not to think that that's what happens to other people. What's being said here is this, what ha- this is what happens to us when we sign up for the slavery to sin. For me, in my Christian life, the helpful reminder of this is always Augustine, or St. Augustine's line, where he says, sin is the punishment of sin. It just happens. Now, instead in this text, the development, as we talk about development of slavery to God, the, the, the injunction, the direction is going to be, instead of offering yourselves to sin, offer yourselves to God. And it's the opposite kind of development. Instead of deteriorating, we will grow in the likeness of Christ. I am judgmental. I judge you guys. I mean, I don't mean to, and I know I'm not supposed to. But I'll tell you right now as a pastor, you can not that you care about pleasing me, but anyway. If I can see growth in the, in, into the likeness of Christ... If you show me that you have all your ducks in a row, morally, oh, this won't do that, don't do those bad things, don't. I'm not that impressed by that. You show me growth in likeness to Christ, and I see what's being talked about here. And if you truly have seen the grace of Jesus Christ, you will grow in likeness to Christ. And here's the good news. I see it here all over. Different in different people. It shows up differently in each of you. That's the wonder of it is that there's no, we can't force one to look just like the other one. Right? You could look around this room and think, well, that person, they sure are different than that person. But the wonder is that both of them may be growing in likeness to Christ. It's not about becoming more right. It's about becoming more Christ-like. I often remind people, I'll, I'll remind my own kids of this, you will do the most damage in your life when you're right. 
you do a lot of damage when you're wrong too, but when you're right, you can destroy whole families. If you correspond the way to the way of Christ, you become a slave to God. You're awakened to this conversion, not to religion. But the, the great thing about this is, even for those of you who might be caught in religion, I don't think there's that many here, frankly. They struggle going to this church. But um, for those who might be caught in a life of religion, it's never too late to see the grace of Christ and become free. David Brooks, who's known as the conservative columnist in the New York Times, uh, wrote an opinion piece this week, and, and I liked it. He basically was saying, here's what I want from my life that I don't think I have. He said, I see some people in my life who I truly admire, but the ones I truly admire, he says, they don't, they don't necessarily... Well, he, he draws a distinction between what he calls um, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he says the resume virtues are the ones that while you're alive, everybody applauds. Right? Jordan Spieth won the Masters last week. He's 21 years old. He's tied a record. He's, those are resume virtues. And they're impressive. But he said eulogy virtues like compassion, selflessness, grace, humility. He said, that's what I want. It just doesn't seem to be that much on offer of how I... He said, the one thing I, he said, Brooks said, the one thing I can see in common with all the people that I see who have eulogy virtues in this, in this life uh, is that uh, they're humble. They're able to say, and I, I would say in a room this size, not everybody can do this. And some of you, if you can't do this, you need to wake up a little bit. And, who, and maybe me too. Who can say, you know what I really struggle with? I struggle with the fact that though I can be a pretty friendly person, I can do a pretty good job at keeping people at a distance. Or I struggle with this. Or it's this. And Brooks says, the, the ones who really have the eulogy virtues, that's the thing I've, I've seen in common. They're able to name one of the central struggles in their life. Even if it's painful. This is the development of... I, when I'm reading, I'm thinking about life in Christ, that when you realize that you're free, you don't have to perform, you don't have to achieve anything. What that freedom leads to, or can lead to, is the ability to be humble and say, I don't have anything to protect because my standing isn't on my merit. My standing is on the merit of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we could just grow in that as a church, and I would look at every single one, I honestly would, and if you could say, I know I can be like this. Instead of, I know they can be like this. Our world holds up resume virtues, but what truly matters are eulogy virtues. It's interesting that he even calls them eulogy virtues, which mean they're talked about once somebody's gone. Compassion, patience, patience joy, contentment, gratitude. What this text is going to say is that when you're a slave to God in Christ Jesus, you will develop a Christ-likeness. You can't avoid it. And by the way, you guys know it when you see it, don't you? That's because that's the Holy Spirit at work. Finally, the third thing, the results will be different. It's pretty stark here in chapter 6, verse 23. Slavery to sin results in death. He names it. Slavery to sin results in life, fruitfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, and eternal life. 
And here's where chapter 7 comes in, where he's using a bit of a clunky metaphor. And, and it's always helpful in Scripture to remember that, you know, because you guys like to do things like, well, what are the rules around marriage? What are you allowed to do and not do? Let's look at what Romans 7 says. Romans 7 isn't about marriage. Romans 7 is using marriage as an illustration to make a more important point. Right? So, and the point is, if, you, if, if you're married to someone and they die, you're no longer married to that person. Jesus Christ has died. In, in, and the law as means of salvation has died with him. doesn't mean that, that we do away with all the law. doesn't mean that it's, it's, it doesn't matter how we live. But the law as means to salvation, you're now free from that. Free to live what? A life that corresponds to Christ. And now Christ is going to say, and I am the fulfillment of the law. He grants dignity to the law. So do you have it? That's marriage. It's not in a marriage. I mean, can you imagine some of you are newlyweds or you haven't been married that long or you know newlyweds or whatever. Can you imagine in a marriage somebody saying, oh, I love this person so much and, and my life is, this is what I've always longed for and now I get to do whatever I want. The correct answer would be, your, your head is made of cement. Because you have entered this life that you love this relationship with this person that you love, but it means the opposite. You don't get to do whatever you want. Not if you're in love. You will consistently be asking about the other, the interests of the other. And for those of us who've been married for any amount of time, I mean, somebody said yes to me, and, and you know, she's a very, very nice person, not just for saying yes to me, but... Jennifer and I are, are, are still always, out of love, learning what it means to, to put your own interests second. She's better at it than me. That's just, you know. But it's, but it's always for both people. I, I'm in love so much. I'm so glad I have this life. Now I'll do whatever I want. Well, then you don't get it, do you? You're free in Jesus Christ, but you've been set free to the things of life, not the things of death. So why would you go back to the things of death? You're free in your marriage, sure. But why would you go back to the things that you know will destroy you? I end with a happy, well, a silly illustration. I don't often end with silly illustrations. You end with powerful illustrations. This is powerful for me, okay? I call it the law of the black truck. It should be up on the screen. It's a very important law. Um, the law of the black truck is, it, I ride my bike a lot, okay? And I, I t I've told you before, I'm a very nice bike rider. I never uh, shake my hand or any given finger at any driver. I hate buses because buses take up bike lanes. And you can go on Marine Drive or something and you just pass the bus, bus passes you. Pass. Anyway, there's lots of things I could tell you that bother me. And I will if you're interested. But, I, but not now. Okay. <laughs> but I have one law that I, and, and I've been riding now for a few years. 
and I ride a fair bit, and so I used to get more upset, like if a driver cut you off or something. I'd be like, ah, that guy. And now I realize it's actually a little bit dangerous to, to be riding, and so it's better that my mind, that I'm not angry and frustrated. So I, I just find ways, little mechanisms to. And one of them is the law of the black truck. If I'm riding my bike and someone's ri- driving too close to me, or if I hear <laughs> up behind me, right, and I know there's a right turn coming for them, but I'm going straight, and I don't know if they're turning right or not. They're not going to signal. They're not going to do whatever. But they're going to cut me off. And they're going to... that I can't, I can't turn around and see what that vehicle is. But like... This is an exaggeration. Seven times out of ten, it's a black truck. <laughs> or an expensive car. But we'll, that's another sermon. <laughs> so when it happens now... Or something, or something, I, and it happens and I steady myself and then I go... Todd, remember, law of the black truck. That might be a nice person in there, but when they bought that black truck, they decided, they agreed to obey the law of having a black truck, which means they will drive aggressively and mean all the time. Now, I don't know if any of you here live, have a black truck. But if I do, this is the good news. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be slaves to sin. And I do, I laugh at myself when somebody does something really nice and I turn and I see what vehicle it is and it's a black truck and I think, you're not obeying the law of the black truck. You've been set free. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Oh, you struggle with sin. Oh, yeah, we still live on this side of the resurrection, the end of all things, our resurrection. Fullness in Jesus Christ. But in this, in here and now, we are being told, you don't have to live according to slavery to sin. Even though you bought that thing and you signed up and you've got a body like everybody else, you can live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who brings life eternal. Amen. So we go to communion and we are reminded that what Jesus has done for us This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Allison sung that beautiful song, the the non-congregational piece. Stark images. But, I mean, I'm going to keep crying. Why don't I have to cry anymore? It's a metaphor again. You, Lord Jesus, have taken on the death that I don't have to face now. The sin, the darkness, and you have set me free from this life. Take and eat. This is my body. Take this cup. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And no life in Christ. So who can take this? Anybody who knows Jesus or wants to. And the life in him. Let me pray for the communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you that we can live in the light of the resurrection. Holy Spirit, that we live according to your presence and your call, not according to some uh, terrible battle. We have been made free. There's no wondering about where victory is. We are aware, Heavenly Father, that tremendous cost can come if we don't see this, if we believe the lies about our own worth, self-worth. If we think that we're worthless, we can do terribly damaging things. In our, um, in our ignorance, we can be impatient with others, judgmental of others, 
force, in some ways, forcing them into situations of sin, pain. But we come to this table now and we say, we say this with a desire to live lives of freedom. We come to this table and we say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us our sins. And may we live in the light of the victory that you have. Bless this communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.